0: Welcome back. It is hardline here on News Radio 930 W B E N. Let's get right to it. Joining us this segment is New York State Senator and Minority Leader Rob Ort. Senator Ort, good morning.
2: Good morning, Joe. Great
0: to be with you. Uh, first, before we get to uh, the rising violence, and we we will be talking about that. You know, we're we're starting to see this. COVID misinformation again, and uh, we're starting to see some of it out of Albany, especially with the governor talking about schools. Uh, I just want to know how you think uh, the governor has handled this week of COVID information.
2: Well, you know, you're hearing now, you know, uh, you know as you mentioned, schools and you know, this, this sort of insinuation uh, that, that schools can be super spreader events when we know, looking at the past several months and year and a half of data that that never was the case schools were never super spreader centers there was very little spread if, if, if any uh in most of the schools and that was at the height that some of the worst days uh of the pandemic even when the kids were uh in in the hybrid you know uh, so, some in person some remote uh so i just i i think this notion um of 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 Really instilling fear in parents uh, is is wrong. It's dangerous. Um, look, at, the reality is, as people get vaccinated, the idea that they're going to have to continue, you know, or they may have to return to masks, um, it's, you're going to undermine the very thing you're trying to do. If you're trying to get people vaccinated, telling them that, that there's going to be no difference in their lives and they're going to have to continue to wear masks wherever they go is going to, I think, not only discourage people who aren't vaccinated from getting vaccinated, But I think more importantly, you're going to have a a real pushback from people who did get the vaccine who are going to say, I got the vaccine, so I don't have to wear a mask around, so I don't have to go back to lockdowns. We can't do that. We cannot do that. We have to come up with answers that do not just resort to, you know, going like a turtle into our shell and shutting down businesses and shutting down schools uh, and everyone wearing masks for them to go. I just, that is not the answer. And I think that's a a real uh, cop-out as uh, elected leaders
0: looking at the uh, at the governor's powers because I think there's a lot of uh, a misunderstanding of what's going on. he let his emergency powers uh, expire as he said. Does he have the power right now to reinforce anything that we saw over the last year?
2: So he as the governor in, in the normal constitu you know the constitutional framework in New York State, he has you know certain emergency powers and you know if there's a snowstorm I mean, there's things he can do um through executive agencies or executive powers he, he cannot override local laws he cannot you know so he can't uh if, if erie county um you know it has a law or if, if a school district has a certain uh you know rule or a town has he cannot simply override those laws and rules um on his own he would need the legislature to change the law he cannot he also can't uh, undermine or override state law so if if there are certain state laws in place he can't by executive order just change that uh he can't uh you know there's some budgetary limitations now so there's there's a huge difference uh not having those broad powers but knowing this governor he will certainly push the lines and push the bounds of his normal constitutional powers um, you know, going forward
0: and we'll have more about the Governor later, but I want to get into the rise of violent crime throughout the state. You know, Senator, it seems every morning I follow all the major news outlets throughout the state of New York, and it seems like every morning multiple outlets in multiple areas of the state uh, are reporting you know three shots, uh, you know shooting uh, the sh- the uh, the suspect is not in custody, suspect is on, on the run, and you're just seeing more and more of this uh, throughout the summer. And, uh, you know, people have a lot of questions, and it doesn't seem like we're getting a lot of answers at what's going to be done or what's being done to stop this. Uh, so my question to you is, what is the way to kind of curve uh, this rise we've seen in violent crime throughout the state? Yeah,
2: it's, it's a frightening prospect, right, You know, on one hand, we're talking about increases in, in uh, you know, the caseload uh, related to COVID. Uh, and now we're, we're talking about an increase in uh, – a significant increase in violent crime. Just last night, 10 people were shot outside of a laundromat in, uh, in New York City. Um, uh, you know, I mean, really, these aren't just – not that it's ever okay, but to me, as I watch some of these reports, it isn't even just your run-of-the-mill – it seems very brazen, some of these attacks, very sort of brazen um and uh you know criminals certainly i think are are more than ever are not feeling any deterrent or threat and I think there's a, a a real brazenness to some of these attacks and some of these shootings um and they're happening all over they're happening in uh you know communities of color they're happening in um you know suburbs they're happening all over the state in cities and elsewhere, and I think you can't escape to me. Can't escape the, the sort of the national narrative, which, we, which we've seen, which was you know whether it was the defund the police movement or the anti-police rhetoric, uh, a real push and, and sort of an undermining of law enforcement and public safety. Uh, and then of course closer to home here in New York State, you look at the bail changes uh, and and the laws that were that were changed. Some of the most significant changes to criminal justice in maybe in you know in the history of New York State were 90 percent, 90 percent of arrests. 90% of, of, of arrestable crimes were now going to be no bail, including you know, things like having an illegal gun. So if you're caught with an illegal gun, illegal firearm in your possession, that's an appearance ticket. You're back on the street, uh, obviously, to go get another illegal gun and try to commit whatever crime you were planning on committing uh, with that firearm. So uh, just I can't get around, and I don't think people can get around, when you see this increase in crime, it is, it is in part a direct result. Of the laws that have come out of Albany uh, over the past two years it's, it's it's connected to the rhetoric that have come out of Albany, whether it's the bail changes, uh, changes we've really uh, handcuffed our law enforcement as far as what they can do. Um, and again, I think criminals feel emboldened uh, not only by being back on the street in some cases but just in general, they feel emboldened to go and commit these heinous acts, and we're all paying a price for it. Uh, we're less safe today than we were before these changes were made, and uh, we're going to have to undo, repeal, uh, bail reform, and we need to give our police officers the tools and resources that they need to go out there and restore public safety to our communities.
0: Is there any bipartisan support when it comes to repealing or at least looking Again, at these at the bail reform, you know, I've heard district attorneys around the state. Not all of them are on the right side of the political aisle who say these these are awful for our communities. Ha- have you gotten any kind of support on the other side of the aisle uh, when getting rid of these bail reform?
2: No, no, we, we have not. Every single state Senate Democrat um, that I'm aware of, I can't speak to all the assembly Democrats, but in the Senate side, um, you know, they I don't know what they say privately or what they say when they're you know, talking to certain groups uh, in their own district. But I can tell you they all voted for it. Uh, They've all supported it. And no one has really had the courage to come out and say, um, this is not working. We are less safe. The funny thing is what you just mentioned is that a number of district attorneys uh, like David Soros, who's a Democrat from Albany County, make no mistake, a Democrat, probably a a liberal Democrat, uh, but he's a prosecutor. Um, You know, even – uh, you know, the Democratic nominee for New York City mayor, Eric Adams, no doubt a liberal Democrat in a city like New York, but he was a cop. Um, you look at, you know, Dermot Shea, who is the NYPD police chief down in New York City. All of them, all of them have said that the bail changes and the criminal justice, quote unquote, reforms that have been made have had a negative impact on public safety and a direct correlation to the increase in violent crime. Now, these are people who do this for a living. They're not, they don't go to Albany and just vote. These are people, they are in the criminal justice system. They are tasked with protecting us. So forget Democrat, Republican. They're tasked with protecting these communities. And they tell you publicly that these changes had a direct correlation. So you can believe the progressive Democrats and the socialists who say this is the right thing to do, or you can believe Democrats who, as, as well as Republicans who do this for a living and who have said there is an absolute connection and we have to, peel these. We have to change these uh, and restore uh, public safety and law and order. And uh, at this point, Senate Democrats have been unwilling or too scared to listen.
0: You know, I, I'd ask a Senate Democrat this, but uh, I can't get any to come on my show. Uh, what are they saying when you propose to at least visit, revisit these bail reforms? Why are their excuses to not even revisit and take a look?
2: You know, uh, some of it's been silenced recently. I think that there was you know uh a couple months ago or maybe uh you know going back to late last year uh they felt vindicated uh by the electoral uh, election results um you know they felt that that was a sort of a, uh an approval by the voters of the changes that had been made um to the criminal justice system uh you know they certainly think that the the you know that they'll they'll sort of fall back on uh this is you know we need to move to a a, a more socially just or or woke criminal justice uh, uh, system that is more, you know, fair and just and, you know, takes into account uh, racial disparities and all, all these sort of buzzwords are things that certainly, um, you know, t- is meant to stifle debate. But the reality is, where are many of these? Who are the victims of many of these crimes? They are minorities. They're, they're, they're you know, Whether it's black, Hispanic, you know, ethnic minorities, Asians, you know, you hear a lot about stop the hate. We need to but, but who is committing many of these crimes and the victims of many of these violent crimes are happening in communities of color. And so I would argue to both those communities and to my colleagues across the aisle, they're not doing anything for those communities by, by releasing and emboldening criminals to prey and victimize those communities. Because that, that is what is happening. But we've been so focused on the, the race of the, of the alleged criminal or the convicted criminal – we're so focused on the rights and, and, and uh, you know, opportunities for those who have breached the public trust, who have committed crimes, and you hear nothing, nothing in Albany about victims of crime, nothing about those who've been victimized by gang violence and drug violence and, and you know, the shootings and the stabbings and things you're seeing. Um, and the reality is you know, those are, again, those are communities, uh, disadvantaged communities, communities of color where we're seeing the increase in crime. They know more than anyone that we need Public safety, that we need law enforcement to be in those communities, protecting those communities from those who would prey upon them, regardless of their ethnicity.
0: So when the governor declared the gun violence disaster emergency, um, he literally meant just guns. He's not willing to revisit any of this as, as well?
2: It, 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 it would appear not. I mean, obviously, he was sort of like the governor tends to be big on, uh, on, on you know pronouncements and very short on substance. Uh, As far as what this would actually look like, but it, it, you know, the the idea that just declaring this a public health emergency, uh, you know, COVID is a public health emergency. Uh, This is a, to me, a largely man-made emergency. Um, And it's not the guns. I mean, we passed how many gun laws and you go back to the safe act and a number of other gun laws that really, really just target law abiding gun owners. Um, And the evidence of that is what you're seeing right now, because, Clearly, those, all those gun laws, which target law-abiding gun owners, have done nothing to stop the increase in violent crime because they're perpetrated by people who aren't law-abiding. They're perpetrated by criminals. They're perpetrated by people who have illegal firearms. So we pass you know, a lot of gun laws that uh, you know, target law-abiding gun owners and try to make, make it harder to, to own and, and, and uh, possess a firearm, but yet we pass a, a, a bail law that makes it an appearance ticket if you're arrested, owning and possessing a, uh, an illegal firearm. So you have to ask yourself, what's the real goal here? Um, and I think, you know, those listening probably know it's, it's, you know, many on the left hate guns, uh, but apparently don't make the connection that it's the person, you know, who has the gun. It's, it's, it's a criminal that actually makes the, the determination, uh, whether to use that gun violently or to shoot somebody that are robs a bank or a convenience store or whatever. So, you know the answer to me is not more gun laws. It is to go after the people who are actually perpetrating these crimes. Uh, but I have not seen any evidence of that. And again, the greatest example is: you have an illegal firearm, you're back out the same day with an appearance ticket. Um, but you know, heaven uh, forbid, you want to go through the process of legally owning a firearm. We're going to make that as difficult and hard as possible.
0: Yeah, and we've seen the places with the hot, the most strict uh, gun laws are the ones that have the uh, highest gun violence.
2: That's correct. You know, you can look at Illinois, Chicago, New York, obviously New York City. Um, you know, you're places that are very, very difficult in those cities to for a legal a legal gun owner to try to get a pistol permit or, or, or get a firearm. And yet um, there's certainly no shortage of firearms, and that's because many of these crimes are being committed by, uh, you know, illegal firearms. And legal, legal gun owners will tell you, you know, they would love nothing more than for illegal firearms and people who have illegal firearms to be, um, uh, you know, uh, off the street. But that's not what's happening. They're being returned to the street, and law-abiding citizens. And we've seen this draw across the spectrum, where up is down and down is up. Where if you're a law-abiding citizen, if you're a law-abiding New Yorker, it, it seems increasingly like we are making, we are targeting those folks. And there's a real focus on those who are not law-abiding or who have broken laws. Um, and somehow law-abiding New Yorkers are sort of the, the uh, victimizers and the people that have broken the law are increasingly uh, the victims. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's bull. It's that's, that's not true. It's uh, sort of a political uh, paradox that we're in. Uh, but this, you know, declaring a public health crisis will do nothing. Will do nothing. To change the increase in crime. It's going to take real uh, action. It's going to take giving law enforcement the resources and tools. It's going to be taking the handcuffs off of them and putting them on the criminals.
0: Now, Senator, before we get uh, get you out of here, I do have to ask, this is a breaking story. Now, I know this isn't in your district, but I'm sure this is going to be talked about in Albany. Uh, According to the Buffalo News, the Buffalo Bills will be seeking $1.1 billion of public money uh, for a new stadium, either in Orchard Park or in the city of Buffalo. Uh, How's that going to go over in Albany? Well,
2: um, you know... I don't know. I, I remember several years ago when the state, uh, I think, spent a bunch of state money to build a new a new stadium in the Meadowlands for the Jets and the Giants. And, um, and every New Yorker, whether you were a, a Jet or Giants fan or not, uh, ended up paying for that. Um, you know, I'm sure, I, obviously, I'm, I'm hearing this for the first time. That, that's okay. As you said, it's breaking. Um, obviously, we want to keep the Bills in Buffalo. You want to make sure the Bills have, um, you know, a stadium uh, that, that. You know, befits an NFL team today. I know the NFL. I'm sure is is, is putting pressure and pushing this. Um, but again, I, I do think one of the challenges always is that if, if you're going to put public dollars into it, first of all, uh, you got to know what the pagouls are putting into it, because they are obviously very wealthy people. They own the team. They bought the team knowing the stadium situation. And I think we got to know what their skin in the game is. And this can't be a fully public-financed uh, kind of a thing. But I also think. If there's going to be public dollars, there needs to be there needs to be uh, a broader economic development impact. In other words, it can't just be a building a stadium that that is good for the Pagoulas and the bills. There has to be a larger uh, economic impact to the community uh, to justify any public dollars. So no doubt that will that that discussion will probably, uh, you know, take a lot of twists and turns uh, and we'll see. But, um, uh, you know, that's a lot of money. And it's a lot of money for the state to put in. And so I think there's going to be a lot of conversations uh, about uh, about what the Pagules are willing to put in. And, uh, you know, we'll see where we end up. But I'm sure that's going to, we'll be talking about this for uh, weeks and months to come.
0: And my last question, I did read through your National Review piece, and I would suggest everyone uh, go take a look at it. Um, But it made me remember of a time uh, where Governor Cuomo was not a popular person, no matter what side of the aisle you were on, and we had investigations start back up. And uh, So I'm going to ask you the question you asked in the National Review. Mm -hmm. Why is Andrew Cuomo still governor?
2: Uh, (laughs) In in a simple answer, it's because – The legislature controlled by democrats have simply refused to hold this governor accountable and they've been uh for really for the past 18 months they've refused to even be a partner in governing and you can look no further than the covid pandemic where the governor basically ran the state uh through executive order alone and then even after multiple scandals of sexual harassment sexual assault uh uh you know the the uh nursing home uh cover-up basically you know fudging the data doctoring reports, lying to people about what was going on, the book deal of 5.1 million, threatening legislators, threatening local officials. I mean, we could go on and on. It took all of that just to put pressure on the Senate Democrats to rescind some of the governor's powers, not even all of his powers. They still allowed him for many weeks and months after that to run the state by executive order. Uh, And now after calling on him to resign, right, he should resign, he should step aside. Many of those people have appeared with him in public at press conferences announcing, you know, funding and announcing projects and making jokes. Uh, It really is ridiculous. If this was the superintendent of your school district, if this was a CEO of any company in America, he would be gone. Only in New York, because of a real feckless, spineless legislature, um, has he remained uh, in power as the governor, hoping we all forget. But I can promise you, we won't.
0: State Senator Rob Ort, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Joe. That is State Senator Rob Ort, also Minority Leader, joining me. When we come back, I'll be replaying the interview from Friday that Brian Mazurowski and I had with Dr. Amesh Adalja from Johns Hopkins. All that and more, next on Hardline. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively... Sports.
1: That clock at four. Donchich. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at TMobile.com/AcrossAmerica.
0: Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card, allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device, credit, service ported, 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier, and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Welcome back. It is Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBen, and uh, we have been joined by Doctor. Tom Russo. We've been joined by Dave Leventhal, and we've been joined by State Senator Rob Ort. This segment, we are replaying an interview from Friday when Brian Mazurowski and I uh, chatted with Dr. Amesh Adalja from Johns Hopkins University and talked about everything going on with the new variants, with the uh, the slowing of the vaccination numbers and what he thinks of the proposed mandates. So here's that replay from Friday here on Hardline.
1: Dr. Amesha Dalja <laughs> is joining us now from Johns Hopkins University, uh, infectious disease specialist. Uh, and we're hearing a, a lot about this uh, CDC, which by, I guess first we should start off with. I, I, we've been talking about a mistake, on this show at least, by the CDC of how much harm would it have been to release this information a couple of days ago when you're making these changes in the first place or hold off on announcing the changes until this information was ready to be released because a few days after um, and saying, oh, we have the evidence coming, it didn't do a lot for confidence in that organization.
3: Yeah, certainly that when that decision was announced and the updated guidance, many people wanted to know more about the science that was driving that decision-making process. And I think the CDC kind of made an unforced error here because it made it much harder to understand. It was confusing. And, you know, I still think I still have issues with that guidance, but being more transparent and proactive about really showing people the science as you make this decision would have, I think blunted some of the criticism they got. And I think there's, I still have questions about the value of the guidance, but in general, I think that they, they had a communication error here with with how you want to let the public know about major shifts in guidance.
0: Speaking of that guidance, you said you still have some issues. What is your main issue uh, with that guidance and the message it puts out?
3: Well, even by their own admission, when this is, what they're talking about happening with vaccinated people is that there are some fully vaccinated people who get breakthrough infections that are associated with the same level of virus as people who were not vaccinated, which suggests that they could be contagious to others. They admit that this is a very rare occurrence and that it's not accounting for anything but a very small proportion of the transmission going on. So I don't know the value that you're going to get of having fully vaccinated people wear masks in terms of the trajectory of the pandemic, because we are in a pandemic of the unvaccinated. It is unvaccinated people who are infecting other unvaccinated individuals and who are the ones in the hospital. If you go through any hospital, and I'm sure it's the case in Buffalo, 99 or 96% plus are going to be not vaccinated. So this is something that illustrates that the vaccines are working because these breakthrough infections that are occurring are not clinically significant, meaning they're very mild or with no symptoms at all, and that's a win for the vaccine. And having vaccinated people wear masks, I think you can not necessarily make that guidance, but you can say if you're somebody that's fully vaccinated and you're, and you're yeah. immunocompromised, you maybe should be wearing a mask in high risk condition in high risk situations, so you don't get a breakthrough infection. Because most of the other breakthrough infections are, are very mild, and I don't think that we want to be in the business of changing policy based on something that's very rare and it's kind of clinically inconsequential when we have this huge cyclone of a problem with the unvaccinated. And I think that's what we need to be focusing on. And I wonder also if the guidance is going to increase vaccine hesitancy because the people who aren't vaccinated now haven't seen the vaccine as a value. And now they're probably going to see it as less of a value, especially in those places in the country where there is higher substantial spread.
0: What you're
1: speaking to, it seems like there's the complete absence of what would have really been a very simple cost benefit analysis of making this uh, announcement, uh, setting these guidelines where, uh, you know, what impact are we going to have on case rates? It seems like, you know, maybe minimal uh, judging on the not only the announcement, but who is likely to follow these new uh, rules or guidelines. And you're going to have a big impact on public trust in the vaccines. And I, I don't know how no one was, you know, raising their hand in the boardroom
3: at all. It, it, to me, it's mind boggling. And, you know, I've taken some criticism for being not supportive of the CDC guidance, but that's exactly what I what I see. I think they could have done this better. They could have said there is this small risk. We're just letting you know about it. It doesn't change our guidance because it's really not something that's going to have a major impact on the trajectory of the pandemic. And, you know, the, the real focus has to be on getting unvaccinated people to wear masks and get vaccinated. That's that's what's that's what's causing our problem here. We're in a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And, and if this And I think what we're finding is that we have a two-track pandemic. Some parts of the country, the Northeast particularly, are treating COVID more like other respiratory viruses because so many of their high-risk people have been vaccinated. But other parts of the country have been resistant to that, and it's the same parts that were resistant to masks earlier. They're resistant to vaccines. And I don't really know how you're going to – it's becoming more and more challenging because some of those people are going to dig their heels in even further. And now that they're being told that if you – suppose you live in Missouri and you get fully vaccinated, you still have to wear a mask. That's going to be something that they're not going to probably take to very well, even though we have seen some uptick in vaccinations. I, I think we're in a very odd place in this pandemic, and it's really, uh, it's really sad because we have a 21st century solution to this pandemic, the vaccine, but yet we're kind of reverting back to these primitive solutions like, like masks. You know,
0: talking about the uh, the messaging, and you put this in your piece in, in The Hill, um, which is at my Twitter, at the Joe Beamer. Um, and you're talking about breakthrough cases, and I think that's another thing that has really been miscommunicated. Uh, I keep on going back to the example of Frank Reich and uh, the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. They call him a breakthrough case, yet he's asymptomatic um, and he's vaccinated. Uh, that really shouldn't be considered a breakthrough case right because that shows that the vaccine worked against the virus
3: right right when you have these breakthrough cases that are mild people should be cheering because that was because the vaccine stopped an infection from getting being worse than it was uh, the vaccines are working the vaccines are designed not to stop every case but to stop serious disease hospitalization and death. and they're doing that tremendously, all three of the vaccines available in the United States. But we have to draw a distinction between breakthrough cases and breakthrough disease. Are we seeing people that are fully vaccinated get breakthrough infections that land them in the hospital? Not to uh, to a very high degree. There are some, but it's really a minuscule number. The hospitals that that have patients have unvaccinated patients. And I think we have to get to a point where we realize COVID is not going anywhere. This is going to be a disease we deal with all the time. It's gonna be a respiratory, it's gonna be an endemic respiratory infection and what we have to do is try and tame it by vaccinating high-risk individuals. And we've done that in many states. There are some states where there's exceptions, like Florida and, and uh, in, in Kentucky and Arkansas and uh, in Missouri and Nevada, Louisiana, that we have to continue to, to focus on. But uh, th- this idea of COVID 0 or trying to stop every mild case or to stop people who are fully vaccinated from having a common cold-like illness. I, I really don't think that should be driving policy. The policy should be driven towards the unvaccinated.
1: You know, starting to just take a look at what the CDC was basing these new recommendations on, and it looks like they're kind of relying heavily on something that happened in Cape Cod, um, an outbreak of about 800 vaccinated uh, people, or I'm kind of parsing through this as I'm reading it. I don't know if that was all vaccinated or if that's the total number, but it's looking at uh, Cape Cod on 4th of July weekend, which I would imagine was a pretty big party um and it's a pretty small area where there's going to be a lot of people close together uh, pretty prime for spreading out the virus i do you take any issue at all with how the cdc is uh, using just kind of this one case study and changing the recommendations based off of it
3: that's very insightful on your part and i was going to bring that up uh, so i'm glad you did so yes what happened in provincetown in massachusetts The question is, how replicable is that or how applicable is that to everyday life? Because, yes, you're talking about a Fourth of July party where people were packed together, drinking, screaming and, and shouting. Is that representative of the average vaccinated person's life on a day in and day out basis? And how so it may not necessarily be applicable to real life situations. It might have been an extraordinary situation where they found out some important things about the virus. But how well that extrapolates to day to day living for the average person that's fully vaccinated. I think remains a question, uh, so, so that's something that I think limits the kind of the, the force of that guidance because it is based on basically a case study, an important case study, but one that may not really reflect what happens in everybody's life on, a, on an ordinary basis. And also I'd want to know a little bit more, you know, they talk about the cycle threshold, which is a fancy term for how much virus the, the PCR machine picks up or how quickly it picks it up. I would want to know, you know, can they culture the virus from those vaccinated people? That would be another important question. Not just that you're finding viral genetic material, but is there actually cultivatable virus there? Meaning, can it can it grow on cells?
0: Speaking to testing of vaccinated people, uh, do you think if. It- Let me let me rephrase how I was going to say this. Do you think vaccinated people should go through normal testing? Or do you think uh, because, as you mentioned, vaccinated people could test positive but not be sick, um, that could inflate cases when it really doesn't need inflating and send the wrong message?
3: Well, there definitely have been detections of what I call pseudo outbreaks, because maybe, for example, a sports team might be just testing everybody, irrespective of symptoms and irrespective of vaccination status. That, I think, needs to go away. We shouldn't be testing fully vaccinated asymptomatic individuals. The CDC guidance, however, has changed and they say if you have a significant exposure uh, and you're fully vaccinated, you should get a test three to five days after that exposure, which is a new thing that they put in there. I don't know. The value of that clearly though if you're a symptomatic person if you get symptoms that are consistent with covid you should get tested irrespective of whether or not you've been vaccinated but for the asymptomatic i don't know the value of it although the cdc guidance has changed when there's significant exposures but that screening of screening to go into a tv studio screening on a movie set screening for major league sports teams i think that probably does not need to be occurring unless you've got symptoms or or some kind of an outbreak situation i think the routine part is just picking up cases that are not really clinically relevant and and really confounding the matter. And and the press loves to pick up, the press loves to magnify these, and I think it erodes confidence in the vaccine because, remember, the vaccines weren't designed to stop every breakthrough. They were were designed for serious disease, hospitalization, and death, and they're off the charts when it comes to that. Yeah, and
1: it seems like even with this new information or what's being published from the CDC that – the vaccine is still holding up. Even the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, despite some of those headlines we saw just a week ago with, uh, you know, oh, no, it might not be working as well uh, with the Delta variant based off of, you know, one study instead of what we're actually seeing in the real world. I, I, there's a lot of, uh, I, I think, a vaccine um, scare tactics almost. I, I don't know what else to call them going on in the last week that would lead you to believe that, they don't really work at all, or that at the very least you need a cloth mask to make the vaccine work as intended.
3: Right, I think that's because people don't re- aren't really clear on what of what we want a vaccine to do. We want a vaccine to reduce the morbidity, the mortality of this disease, and that means stopping people from needing to be hospitalized. And and it's working tremendously. And remember that vaccines are not force fields. They're not bug zappers. Uh, that's not how they work. Uh, they, they produce immunity that once you're re-exposed, jumps into action and, uh, and makes that infection much, much less or aborts it or, or doesn't allow it to be productive, that's the vaccine working. So when I see these breakthrough cases are all mild, I say that's a win for the vaccine. But the press reports it as that's that's a downside of the vaccine. It's the vaccine not working, but that's actually 1,000 percent wrong. And
1: to look at the general picture, and this is something we've been you know kind of saying throughout the uh, week here, when... You have vaccines readily available just about every corner. You walk into any supermarket or pharmacy here and you can get a vaccine. No problem. No appointment needed. No check in online before or anything like that. You can go in and get it if you wish. I Are we near a point where if we're not seeing hospitalizations jump because of the Delta variant, we're not seeing deaths jump because of the Delta variant. I Vaccinated people are protected and The unvaccinated are making their choices, too. Um, You know, in your opinion, are are we near that point to just kind of leave most of
3: this just behind us? Definitely in certain states we are. The only problem is, is that in certain places, Missouri is one place, some parts of Florida, Louisiana, that the unvaccinated are causing a problem for our hospitals, that they're they're getting cases that are severe enough to land them in the hospital because there's high-risk people that haven't been vaccinated that's the issue that we have and i think the next step is for private private employers to start thinking about mandating the vaccine as part of as a condition of employment because that will increase their workforce resiliency increase their workplace safety but i mean th- there comes a point where we're going to say that the unvaccinated have made their choice and and we and giving them money giving them every incentive giving them ev- giving them every opportunity to get the vaccine and they still refuse it i don't know i don't know how long you keep doing that before you say that we we can't do anything more. And I think that's probably obviously something that the CDC has to think about because it's not a good situation to be in. But I think we're increasingly getting to a point where the people that wanted to be vaccinated have all gotten vaccinated. We haven't met Joe Biden's 70% goal by July 4th. We we still haven't met it yet. And I don't think we'll meet it by August 4th. It's, It's really trickling. Although there has been some uptick, which is encouraging, I don't know what, what's going to happen, and I think we've never really been in this situation. People just assumed that, that people would want the vaccine, and the U.S. would end this pandemic here because vaccine. People would want would clamor for the vaccine the way they clamor for new iPhones. That's what I do when there's a new vaccine out, but that's just not what happened. And you can look and see what happened just across the border in Canada. They were really slow to get the vaccine to people, but they when they when they got it, everybody got it.
0: So looking at a state like New York, because you mentioned Florida, Missouri, but looking at a state like New York, do you think any kind of mask mandate restrictions will have any kind of effect on uh, the, the tiny surge that we're seeing in a county like Erie here in a state where we do have 70 percent vaccine?
3: No, it, it depends. The people that we want to wear the masks, they're not wearing them and they're not getting vaccinated. So the, the marginal benefit of having vaccinated people wear masks for that really small chance that they might transmit, I, I don't think that's going to really change the trajectory. That's not. That's kind of like a rounding error to me. I think it's not going to make a major, major difference. And there's a lot of downside to it. And I think we really have to focus on, on the un, unvaccinated. That's that's who's driving this. That's where the the problem is.
0: Speaking of the unvaccinated, because uh, we just got a text on our text board, and we hear this a lot: people who had COVID. Three or four months ago, say, Well, what about me? I have a natural immunity. Why should I go get in line for the vaccine? Uh, what What should be the message to those individuals?
3: It's true that you do have you do have natural immunity, and that immunity will likely make reinfection rarer for you than somebody who doesn't have that. And it also is likely to make your reinfection milder than it would be if you if you didn't have that immunity. But what we know is that that immunity is unpredictable. We don't know the full duration of it. And we know, for example, in studies like what happened in the Johnson & Johnson trial in South Africa and the placebo arm, the people who didn't get the vaccine, there were a lot of breakthroughs in people who had been infected. And there the beta variant was very very prevalent. So it it is the case that natural immunity is something. It's not negligible. It's important. But it will get better and stronger and longer-lasting with vaccine. And even just one dose of the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine, probably is sufficient for a fully vaccinated individual. And I wish the CDC would embrace that, that data and and actually say that because that would increase vaccine uptake because many people who who have had COVID think they're just completely neglecting natural immunity. But there is data to show one dose is probably enough. And I think that would probably get some of those people vaccinated and and increase their immunity and be better for all of us. Uh,
1: So much talk this week about the Delta variant, how it spreads, uh, everything else, and uh, a lot of attention. On kids, because a big part of that CDC recommendation was uh, continued masking in schools. And, you know, kids have suffered so much from the policies of COVID, but they suffer from COVID itself. And nothing, no data that I've seen has really changed that fact that, you know, being a kid, uh, being, you know, under 10 or under 12 or whatever age that you really want to put at it, uh, afford you amazing protection for whatever reason that is. Certainly not something I understand. Uh, but has anything changed in that? And, you know, a lot of people are wondering because we were planning for maybe a normal school year. And now this week, everything's kind of being thrown into the gear somewhere.
3: Nothing has changed. It is true that children are generally spared the severe consequences of disease. And for a child less than the age of 12 years of age, influenza and RSV are bigger threats and probably take more lives. Than, than COVID-19 does. So I, I do think one of the questions to t- think about when you're talking about small children uh, is would you do this for influenza? Because that's kind of comparative when it comes to smaller children. And I think that's something that people don't really think about. And it is true that children have suffered tremendously during the pandemic, not because of anything the virus did to them, but what adults did to them and what teachers unions did to them. So I think that we, we, we really have to have in-school in-person schooling as the norm, the default, and we have to do whatever we can to to make that happen. And one of the things we can do is school districts can mandate teachers be vaccinated. The teachers demanded the vaccine, access to the vaccine uh, to open schools, which wasn't necessary because we had data that it could be done safely. They demanded access to it, but now they don't wanna have a mandate for it. So I think teachers should be forced to to get the vaccine as a condition of their employment. and, and that will help that will. That's the biggest thing that would make the resiliency of the school better. The more vaccinated people in a school, the safer it's going to be, the less disruptive it's going to be from COVID-19. So a vaccine mandate that school districts sh- should put a vaccine mandate in place for, for their teachers.
0: And that was Dr. Amesh Adalja from Johns Hopkins University, a replay from BMAS and Beamer earlier this week. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Tom Russo, Dave Leventhal, and State Senator Rob Orr. If you missed any of the show, it is available at WBEN.com and on the Odyssey app. I hope everyone has a great afternoon. We will see you right back here starting at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. Have a great rest of your weekend. We'll see you then here on WBEN. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports.
1: The clock at four. Donchich. The Step Back Three. You bet. Music.
0: You set my world on fire. Yes,
1: and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here